professed faith in Christ that spring. And later in the summer, we were baptized on the same day down at the river. As you'd expect, a lot changed when we became Christians. The Lord began gradually to reform and transform our affections and our behavior. But our conversion to Christ also had a profound effect on the way we fought with each other. Now, I don't mean that we fought less or even that our fights were less intense after coming to Christ. I'd like to think that they were. Uh, the, the evidence is mixed. What I mean, though, is that after we were converted, my little brother had a new weapon in his arsenal that he could use against me when we fought. Now, before we were Christians, of course, he, he, would, he would resort to calling me names or telling me that he hated me, things like that. And I'd learned to live with that. You know, those, those words hurt coming from your little brother. They're not pleasant to hear. But I can, I can tell you with absolute and experiential certainty that they don't sting nearly as badly. They don't cut nearly as deep as the name that he started calling me after our conversion. Now, at that, at that time, when this was going on, I thought it was... This, this word, I thought it was completely unfair and uncalled for. In fact, I often insisted that it was off limits, not fighting fair. But of course, that just made him revert to calling me this name even more. And I remember one time he called me this name. I was, I was leaving his room after we had finished some kind of a fight. I don't remember what it was about, but I'm sure that I had just given full vent to my sin. Maybe I was 12 or 13, I don't know. As I went back to my room, he had one last word for me. One last name to call me. With a mixture of righteous and unrighteous indignation in his voice, he said to me, Christian. Now, this devastated me. Uh, it didn't just get under my skin. It, it went straight to my heart, and there it inflicted multiple wounds and lacerations. I was overcome with conviction and anger in that moment. I, I, I remember wanting desperately to return to my brother's room and, and take vengeance. You know, but my conviction of sin barely prevented me from doing so. With one word, my brother had exposed my hypocrisy, my inconsistency, my double life. At school, you see, I wore Christian t-shirts and taught people the faith and told people to stop sinning and turn to Christ. Everyone knew I was a Christian. At church, I was, I was a leader among the youth. I, I, I brought my Bible to school and, and I mean, to, to church, and I, I did bring it to school too, I, but I, I brought it to church and I listened attentively to the sermons and, and answered questions in Sunday school and in youth group later. Eventually, people w encouraged me to become a preacher. But when it was just me and my brother, I often acted like an absolute degenerate, a reprobate. And, and more than once, with a single word, my brother would remind me, and if you're like me, you need to be reminded regularly that I routinely 
fail to practice the religion that I profess and preach. We often don't live up to the name that has been placed on us in baptism. We often don't live up to the name of the person who lives inside of us, in our hearts. We often fail to live up to our identity as Christians. In Romans 2, Paul has been addressing this issue. He's been speaking to the religious, the conservative, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-caring, Bible-knowing member of the covenant. In verse 17, he addresses specifically the religious Israelite, the synagogue-going, sacrifice-making, law-keeping, blood-descendant of Abraham. The one who after reading the end of Romans 1, agreed with Paul's, Paul's indictment against the Gentiles and thought to himself, yes, I, I'm, good job, Paul. I'm glad that you're doing this. And I'm glad that I'm not like those unrighteous Gentiles who practice idolatry and immorality. In a sense, Romans 1 was, was something of a setup. Paul knew that the religious types would be cheering him on in Romans 1. So, in Romans 2, he turns his guns and he aims them at the religious. He opens the chapter by saying, You are without excuse, O man. So there's this, this man, we find out in 17, it's a Jewish man, it's explicit. You are without excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For when you judge another, you pronounce judgment on yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. So the man is the Jew who's quite conscientious about his religion. In verse 17, See, you call yourself a Jew. He's, he's grabbing the religious person by his religious identity in order to highlight how he's not measuring up to his professed Religion. And we feel, a, we feel a force of Paul's challenge if we replace Jew, as my brother did, with Christian. You call yourself a Christian? Paul's words cut to the heart of the praying, church-going, Bible-memorizing, God-worshipping people of God who hold God's Word in the highest esteem. These words are designed to make people like us, people in this room feel uncomfortable. Paul's message is just because you call yourself a Jew, just because you call yourself a Christian, don't assume that you're fine. And you see, there is a, there's a, in every one of us, there's an inconsistent, double-minded hypocrite. And, and, and that hypocrite is being hunted down by the living and active Word of God here in Romans 2. Now, the, the, over, the, the overall flow of Paul's thought is, is pretty straightforward, and I outlined it for you. It's one way to outline it, at least, in the handout. First, in verses 17 and 18, Paul sketches four benefits of being a Jew, specifically uh, 
four benefits of being instructed by the law. Then in verses 19 and 20, he transitions to four obligations of being a Jew, four obligations of having the law. That, that's all positive. As we'll see, there's nothing negative in these four, uh, four verses. No rebuke here in the first half of this paragraph. Paul's setting, he, he's setting them up for the hammer drop that's coming in the second half of the paragraph. In verses 21 to 23, Paul lists four transgressions of those who boast in the law. Now, the fundamental sin Paul confronts in this passage is hypocrisy, which is not holding yourself to the same standard that you impose on others, either in your mind or in actual fact, on the ground, in your home, say. Hypocrisy is like the man in the old Reader's Digest story who was fed up with how much his family was spending you know, too much time watching TV. His wife would drop off the kids at school and go home and, and uh, flip on the, the television, and, and the house was always a mess. Supper was never uh, ready on time. When the kids got home from school, they went to their TV and flipped it on and watched their favorite shows instead of doing their homework. And finally, the man decided that he needed to, he'd had enough. He needed to take drastic measures. So one evening at the dinner table, he announced... As soon as the football season is over, I'm pulling the plug. <laughs> Hypocrisy sees the sins of others more clearly than it sees its own sins. It, it applies the Word of God to others without applying it to the self first. So let's start walking through this passage and see how the apostle to the Gentiles develops his argument against hypocrisy. Paul expects his readers to interpret all eight items in verses 17 to 20 positively. As I said, there's no hint that any of these privileges and obligations uh, should be understood negatively. So let's get 17 and 18 before us again. See? You call yourself a Jew and rest in the law and boast in God and know His will and approve of superior things being instructed by the law. These are good things, not bad. When, when Paul talks about resting in the law, he's not talking about works righteousness. He's, he's highlighting the inspired instruction and divine guidance in the law. Paul prizes Torah. In Romans 7, he's going to say that the law is a gift from God intended to bring life to His people. David wrote in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. Boasting in God is also commendable. In Deuteronomy 10.21, Moses says to the people, the Lord is your praise, is the word in our most, most of our English translations, which is a very good translation of the, of the Hebrew and the Greek Old Testament. But a, a more wooden translation of the Greek is that the Lord is your boasting. The Lord is your ground for boasting. And it's the same root word that Paul uses here in Romans 2 for boasting. Boasting in God is a positive thing for Paul. 
He elsewhere, elsewhere says in his letters, the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. And, and even in this book, in, in Romans 5.11, he's going to say, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 18, Paul says, the law shines a spotlight, a bright spotlight on God's will. It, it brings to light what is truly excellent, what is superior in life. Knowing God's will and approving of superior things are spiritual abilities that belong especially to those who regularly meditate on the law of God. The law is a blessing because it's a treasure trove of truth and revelation. It instructs the student, its student, to know God. It uniquely reveals and reflects God's will and God's character. Those who love the law will learn to love what is true and good and honorable and righteous and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. Remember Paul's list in Philippians 4? Possessing the law also comes with obligations. In verses 19 and 20, Paul transitions to the priestly mission of the Jews. Their, their, their priestly mission to the Gentiles, a ministry to the Gentiles given to them by God. He writes in verse 19, And you are convinced regarding yourself that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge, of knowledge and truth in the law. And so last week we talked about, one, or last time, yeah, we talked about God's law that's written on our hearts that we can perceive just by virtue of being a creature, a, a person in God's creation. Well, the, but the law is a special embodiment of that knowledge and truth. The happy, the, the, the happy obligation that the Jews had put upon them by God goes all the way back to Genesis 12 when God appointed Abraham and his descendants to be blessings to all people. Even before the law was given to them. When God took the Israelites out of Egypt, He told them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests. Priests. The priestly role of the Jews involved guiding and teaching the Gentiles from their law that God gave them at Sinai when they came out of Egypt. A, a law that embodied knowledge and truth. The knowledge and truth about God. And Paul says that the Jews were rightly convinced of their role as priests to the whole world. You're convinced, Paul says, that you are called to be a guide to the blind. You're convinced that you're called to be a light to those in darkness. An instructor of the foolish a teacher of the immature. And you are those things. Verse 19 recalls to mind Yahweh's well-known words to Israel in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. 
I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. See that language that Paul uses here? In verses 21 to 24, Paul drops the other shoe and and drops the hammer on religious hypocrisy. Everything in verses 17 to 20 was positive and agreeable. They, 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 They were getting straight pitches right down the middle, the kind that you get during batting practice before the game. But then in verse 21, Paul throws them a sweeping, knee buckling curveball. You who teach another then, do you not teach yourself? The 20th century preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, showed how dangerous not teaching yourself is. He said, As you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourself? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know about of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. Let me read that last part again. Allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. So the further you get along in your Christian life, the further you, 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 the more you get involved in the church, the more you need to heed these words from Paul and this exhortation from Martin Lloyd-Jones. So do you preach to yourself before you preach to others? That's the question. Do, do you practice yourself what you call others to practice? Don't be like the Pharisees. For they preach, Jesus said, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Paul goes on in verses 21 to 23, You who preach not to steal, do you steal? You who say not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? We could go on. Do you who say to be pure, do you look at smut on your phone or justify watching movies with crude content? You who say to be considerate to your wife, do you demean her? In private, you who tell other women to respect their husbands, do you disrespect your own husband at home? You who say to glorify God in all things, do you fail to make worship a priority? Paul highlights stealing, committing adultery, and robbing temples, which is, we can think of as idolatry. 
Jeremiah indicted Israel of these sins. Jeremiah 7 says, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So Paul the prophet is following the prophetic tradition of reminding Israel of their covenant violations. He's not suggesting that all or even most Jews are guilty of stealing, committing adultery, or robbing temples of their idols. Some of them surely committed these sins, but certainly not most. The point is not that every Jew commits these particular sins listed in verses 21 and 22. The point, as one commentator aptly put it, is that these sins are representative of the contradiction between claim and conduct that pervades the people of God. So what's the hip? What's the hypocrisy in you look like? What, what, what shape does it take? Are you aware of the hypocrite within and how he works? How he reasons? One sign of hypocrisy is that you take a very theoretical and abstract and intellectual approach to the Word of God. Hypocrites love doctrine and and ideas and truth concepts, but the truth doesn't change them. When a hypocrite listens to a sermon or reads a scripture, he often thinks about how it ought to convict others, but seldom, if ever, about how it ought to convict him. A man once told me a funny story about what was happening in his pew during one of my sermons. At one point in the sermon, when I made an application specifically to children, this man, in good humor, elbowed his son to make sure that he was listening. And of course, this dad had no way of knowing that a few minutes later I would make an application specifically to parents. At which point, his son, also in good humor, uh, playfully returned the razzing. Now, to to be clear, I'm not accusing that that father and son of hypocrisy, but it, it, it illustrates a point. The hypocrite in each of us is always ready to apply God's word to others and never ready to apply it to himself. He finds the Bible quite applicable to others, but not so much to himself. The Spirit-filled Christian, on the other hand, finds the Word of God living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of His heart. And not other people's hearts, but His heart first. Not His wife's heart, not His children's hearts, not His congregation's hearts, not the heart of his neighbor or his boss 
or his ruling authority or his fellow church member or his co-worker. The living and active Bible first pierces and discerns the thoughts and intentions of his heart. When spirit-filled Christians hear and read the word of God, when they sit under the faithful preaching of the word of God, they, they themselves are convicted and comforted and encouraged and challenged and thrilled and disturbed and broken and built up. So do you teach yourself before you teach others? Do you practice what you preach? This week, even today, examine, examine yourself. Ask God to expose the hypocritical inconsistencies in your life. Pray about it. And then give God time to show you. Just be still, be quiet, and let Him show you these things. It is disturbing, it is convicting. But it's the path to life. It's the path of life. Do this especially if you are in any kind of authority. Authority in the home. Authority in the church. Authority at work. Earnestly pray Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And, if, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me read that again and emphasize the first person personal pronouns. Or several. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. There are times, of course, as we talked about recently, there are times for taking the specks and logs out of others' eyes. But those times are actually few and far between, relatively. And as I told you a few weeks ago, when, when we looked at the first verse, which is related here, I already quoted it in this chapter, God wants you to focus your attention on the evil inside of you, on the wickedness that's boiling and bubbling like lava in a volcano crater. Paul's exhortation is not to refrain altogether from teaching others or making judgments and discernments about the world, the challenge and warning in our passage today is to make sure you are teaching and that yourself, that your teaching and your preaching, as it were, is not centered out there, you know, on, on Facebook or whatever culture war you might want to be involved in. You've got to start by teaching and preaching to yourself, not to the world. And so you've got no business fighting in a culture war if you think that the idols out there are worse and more damaging and more dangerous than the ones at home, the, one, the ones in your own heart. Make sure when you exercise judgment and discernment that you begin with you and always keep yourself at the focal point of your judgmental eye. Subject your own heart first to the wounds and the, the lacerations, the life-giving wounds and lacerations of the living and active and cutting and discerning and searching Word of God. So never let your own heart move to the outer edges of your teaching 
scope. You're admonishing scope. Never think that the thoughts and the intentions of someone else's heart need more double-edged sword applied than, than yours do. Never lose sight of your own boiling and bubbling crater of red-hot wickedness, which needs to be discerned and preached to and corrected and repented of. First, never become more obsessed about teaching God's words and ways to the idolaters out there than you are about destroying the idols in here. And so beware of your tendency to be harsher and hastier in your criticisms of the world than you are of yourself. The most crushing result of, the, of, of self-righteous hypocrisy is that it dishonors God. Now, you might have been thinking I was going to say, well, it, what Paul says there at the end, it causes Gentiles to blaspheme. That's the result. But before that, in verse 23, it dishonors God. Paul's charge of hypocrisy reaches its climax really in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God through your transgression of the law. I mean, boasting in the law would be a legitimate thing if, if the ones boasting were keeping it. But their violation of the law contradicts their boasting in it. It's not boasting in God's law that glorifies God, but obeying it, doing it, keeping it. Christians, there's nothing more important to the eternal existence of your soul. There never will be anything more important to the eternal existence, that is you, of your soul, than bringing honor and glory to God in this life and in the life to come, in this world and the world to come. He made you for His glory. He saved you. When you committed spiritual suicide in Adam, He saved you for His glory. He saved you in Christ for His glory. You were bought with a price, Paul says, so glorify God in your body. Hypocrisy dishonors God. Humility and obedience glorify God. Another crushing result, though, is in verse 24 that it gives outsiders cause to dishonor God. So it gives the outsiders cause to come along the insiders who are dishonoring God and to dishonor God themselves right along with the insiders. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, even as it is written. Hypocrisy drives away the godless even further away. It takes them further from the saving knowledge of the truth. Now that statement in small capital letters in the on your handout in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's, that's a paraphrase of two different statements from the Old Testament. One from Isaiah, one from Ezekiel. And they're kind of combined and paraphrased to make a point. Now, in context, Isaiah and Ezekiel both we're pointing out that Israel's exile, remember they were taken out of the land 
of, of Israel, the promised land, and taken into exile as judgment for their sin. That exile into, into Babylon caused God's name to be despised and profaned among the Gentiles. The Babylonians mocked Israel and mocked Israel's God, who apparently couldn't even keep his own people out of enslavement or, or you know, bondage and exile. Couldn't even keep them in their own so-called promised land. Now, this was an unfortunate situation brought on by Israel's sin. Israel's sin led her into exile. That is, Israel's sin led to the situations where Gentiles were mocking and despising and blaspheming the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, Israel's God. Now, this, this happens at a corporate level, as it did with Israel in the Old Testament, but it can also happen at, an, at the individual level. You know, so the disobedience of an entire congregation can be the cause of God's name being dishonored, or a single hypocritical Christian can be the reason that the world mocks and blasphemes Christ. In a sermon on this passage, Francis Schaeffer wrote, if we have the Bible, if we enjoy all the blessings it brings, and yet by our lives bring shame upon God's name, we are guilty of the greatest irreverence, you know, dishonor, opposite of glorifying God. He continues, when the man with the Bible treats it as an external thing only, it causes the man without the Bible to dishonor the God of the Bible. Surely then, the man with the Bible is justifiably under God's wrath. So do we dishonor God and drive away the godless? This is a heavy passage. It's a convicting passage for all of us. It should be. Are we attractive to outsiders? Do we as a congregation glorify God and cause others to glorify Him? Is that the result of our lives, our actions, our worship, our relationships at work in the world? Do you as an individual boast about the riches of God's Word that you may carry around with you everywhere you go, but dishonor God through your transgression of it? Is our humility and compassion and our uncritical spirit obvious to outsiders? Does our judgment start at home or out there and never quite reach home, never quite get back to home? Do we reflect the love and grace of God? Does your conduct draw people into the presence of God or drive people away from the presence of God? Well, the gospel alone can produce congregations and individuals that draw unbelievers to God rather than driving them away. The gospel, the gospel proclaimed by you believed by you, lived out 
consistently by you honors God and commends God to the world. Let's pray. Oh God, we confess again that we need your help as those who believe your word and hold it in high esteem. We need your help in doing it lest we become hypocrites who drive people away from you and more important, who dishonor you and your name in all kinds of ways. Father, prevent us from doing that and help us to glorify your name by being not just hearers of your word, hearers of your law, but also doers of it. We pray for this in the name of Jesus, for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.